with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, April the 7th, 2023. And since it is Friday, 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 it is time for the Expert Council Q&A Show of the Week. And I've got a great lineup of experts for you today. Remember, we just added a couple experts. You will hear from one of the new experts today. That being Josh, the renegade butcher. Uh, we also added C.J. Kilmer. I need questions for C.J. Kilmer, Professor C.J. Kilmer of the Dangerous History Podcast. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world today. And you know the old saying, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And it's rhyming and rhyming and rhyming in terrible ways right now. So it's a good idea to get some historical context. So if you have any questions on history, especially history that relates to current times, Send them in for C.J. Kilmer. Your food questions, especially like preserving meat, butchering meat, etc. Josh the Renegade Butcher. Of course, we have a full plethora of amazing, and I mean amazing, experts for you. You can find them all by going to, well, this episode. You'll see everybody listed in the notes. But if you go to the survivalpodcast.com, go to the About tab, and the sub page is Meet the Expert Council. You can find out all about the Expert Council there and all the things they can do for you. Formula. Email me, not them, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC expert in the subject line. And then this is the formula. Jack, my question is for expert council member, whomever. Yes? Hit return. My question is, state your question in a single sentence with a question mark at the end of it. I promise you, you can. You will be concise and clear. Then I know you might need to give us details. Hit return a couple times. Put a space in there. Give all the details you want. If you do that that is a 90% chance that sooner or later you will hear your question answered by one of our experts on the air. If you don't do that, your odds go down dramatically. If you skip any of those parts, trust me, I've been doing it for 15 years. I am a professional. I know how to help you get your help from the council members. Anyway, with that, who are we going to hear from today? Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. Ron Paul says, just fix the money. Dan McAdams says, China's production rises and America's war-making is in decline. That's actually a good thing, but it's going to be painful. We've been talking about that a lot lately. And Chris Rossini talks about how perpetual debt as a way of life is coming to an end. I have a feeling I will be expanding on a little bit of each one of those. Jeff Lawton will talk about using a waste stream of used conventional potting soil, and it's a significant amount. Josh the Renegade Butcher will talk about keeping meat safe when butchering domestic animals or wild game. John Pugliano will talk about many of the reasons that whole life insurance, 99% of the time, sucks and you shouldn't buy it. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about adding electrolytes and minerals to the water. I have a quote that I think, I, for my anchor segment today, that I think is particularly interesting to look at today. And I don't know when Will Rogers said this, but I know he passed away in 1935. Okay, so it had to be prior to that dying. Like, you don't get to say a lot after you're dead, contrary to what some scammers will tell you. I can speak to the dead, really? Okay, tell me what Harry Houdini's code word was. You don't know, go away. That's a little historical side note, isn't it? Anyway, Will Rogers once said, 
What the country needs is dirtier fingernails and cleaner minds. I think if if you if you know, how about people spinning in their grave, if that's possible, you know, we could beam a Twitter feed into Will Rogers' grave right now, and if we put a coil around him and wrapped him in copper, he would spin and produce enough energy to run a small state, honestly. And yet he said this back then. So I want to talk about the context. You know, at least like Professor CJ and historical context. What's the historical context of a person seeing a problem in 1935 that doesn't really fully manifest itself for like 70, 80 more years? And how clear is the pattern that was already set? And then what does that bode for us over, let's say, the next 50 years? Anyway, so I think it's important to think about the future if you're going to plan to build a non-brittle life. And that's what this show is really all about. If you've tuned in for the first time today and you're wondering who this crazy redneck duck farmer really is, well, he's really a guy that's into a lot of stuff, tries to be a modern polymath, Tries to figure stuff out, tries to share that information, brings experts in when he doesn't have all the answers, because he doesn't. But more than anything else, my goal is to get people building lifestyles that are resilient. And the reason we talk about preparedness in that is you cannot build a thing with resiliency if you do not build a thing with redundancy. Let me say that one more time. You cannot build a thing with resiliency if you do not build the thing with redundancy. So... What you have to do is think in a permaculture mindset where we build our systems integrated with a mesh style of interconnection so that if one fails, we still have a net. might be a hole in it, but we still have a net where most people build their lives, their businesses, everything around them. They build linear. This connects to that, connects to this, connects to that. And one piece breaks and the whole thing falls apart. That's what we're talking about here at the Survival Podcast, Monday through Friday, five days a week. So if this is your first show, please continue to tune in. With that, let's drop in and hear from Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams with Dr. Paul uh, co-contributing to his segment, and then Chris Rossini, and then I'll be at, back with a little bit of commentary on this segment. There are some economic laws that you can't defy. And one is that if you print a lot of money, it loses its value and it causes bubbles that have to be corrected. And eventually it destroys uh, the reserve status of the currency. It really started with the creation of the Federal Reserve. We know that when they, especially when they have a fiat currency and they're a reserve currency, they inflate. So we know that that is the basic problem that we have. But uh, the thing of it is, the Federal Reserve can do this and manipulate. And, uh, and they, do, they do this without direct congressional approval, just like they go to war without congressional approval and everybody, nobody seems to challenge this. So this is, this is something that we wouldn't have if you had a free market because you'd have uh, insurance of our deposits, but they would be private insurance. And uh, people would have to pay more attention. That, that is the problem. It lasts for a long time. It's very, very expensive. It under minds our liberties and it violates the Constitution. Oh, don't worry about that. We don't have to worry about the Constitution because uh, the Constitution, you, you know, is uh, says if, if it's not prohibited, we can do anything we want, which is a lot of malarkey. That's not the way it works. 
You know, China is very, very conservative. And I remember when I worked for you on Capitol Hill, I met regularly with my Chinese counterparts and we talked about the U.S. economy. And I remember telling them once that there's going to be a day that the dollar is no longer the reserve currency. And they looked at me as if I was insane. <laughs> I'm sure I told that story before. But they don't want to lose their customers. You know, it's like in The Godfather. This is just business, you know. Um, they don't want to lose their customers, but they're about fed up with the way the U.S. behaves, with the balloons, with the pushing them around. Um, with the relations with Taiwan, we had Pelosi going over there, remember, last year, I think it was. And I think the real issue with all of this taken into consideration, new options are emerging, and as China's playing a new role in the Middle East and elsewhere, it's starting to see new markets opening. And while I don't think they want to lose the American market, they certainly don't, they're starting to see the changing world, and I think they're starting to adapt to it. You know, what I have observed these last few years, a lot of people have, is that uh, the, the attitude has changed and we complain about some things that are rather benign in a way and that is oh the Chinese are investing outside of their country and uh, and and we like in Africa for instance yeah, they, and, and we're saying look 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 they're spreading their militarism and all this kind of stuff sure they're looking at that too they're in their business of self-defense too but the United States uh, uh, is busy internationally, but we're busy in a negative activity, and that is provoking, putting on sanctions. Uh, every country has to have one or two people sanctioned yeah. if we weren't doing our job. Yeah. And uh, it, it, then the issue of peace, I think the Chinese came out winning that fight, and then we, we pretend we're the peacemakers. I think there's a sea change going on, not only in uh, political power around the world, because it is always associated with economic power, and the Chinese, although they have a long way to go to catch up be, but at the rate we're declining and they're increasing, it has to be of concern. But they they have a, they they have improved tremendously compared to say 20, 30 years ago when uh, changes were pr pretty messy. Yeah. Dr. Paul has long said that we've been living way beyond our means for a very long time uh, with debts and whether it's government, federal, state, your local corporations, individuals. I saw a headline today that Generation Z is racking up debt faster than any other generation in history. And this is part of the whole funny money thing. It really has just seeped into all of our lives. You know, my grandfather came from Italy, he had a third grade education, and that's it. That's as far as he went. And he, on one income, supported a family, lived a good life. Can you even, that's something that's unimaginable today. And things are not made here. I was before the show trying to think of someone that I know that they work somewhere where they make an actual thing. And I could think of nobody. Now, that's not to say that nothing is made here, but compared to like when my grandfather's generation and after him, virtually nothing is made here. What is manufactured in America is debts, digits, and stuff is made in other countries. They do the work, they make the stuff, and then they ship them over here for digits. You know, so they're getting the raw end of the deal. We're getting all this stuff that we have all around us, and they're getting this depreciating digits. So this is going to change. You know, it's, it's not going to take long for people to realize that you know they don't like this deal anymore. So we are going to have to live within our means once again. We're going to, you know, debt maybe will be a bad word once again. 
so that's what's ahead. How long and how you know how long this process takes, I, I can't possibly say. But that is what's ahead for Americans, as long as the world you know keeps moving in the direction that it's going in now. Man, there, there's a ton to unpack there. Um, I want to start out with the center, where Dan McAdams and Dr. Paul were talking about the see, the, the change that's going on in the world. And Dr. Paul mentioned that the Chinese have a long way to go to catch up with us, but you know we're declining and, and they're accelerating. I want you to think about this like whatever sporting event you watch or watched at some point in your life where you're rooting for a team. Because the, the problem is when you start to say that another side has got momentum or winning, people take that as praise. It's not praise. It's an assessment of the game. Right? It's an assessment of the competition. It's an assessment of the war. It's an assessment of whatever. Okay, And so you're, you're, you're basically being a weather forecaster, and you're saying, here comes a storm. When the weather fa- forecaster says, here's our cone of certainty, and if you live in this place, I'd get the hell out of here because you're about to get wrecked. No one says, oh, look at, the, look at him. He's a tool of hurricane whatever. Right? They say, oh, look, he's forecasting a storm. So understand that's where I'm coming from with this. Have you ever watched a game, let's say it's like a basketball game or a football game, your team is ahead, and and well ahead, and you think you've got it, and about halftime or just after the half, there's a shift in momentum, and you already know, even though you're still, you know, three touchdowns ahead in a, in a, in a, a football game, 22 points ahead in a basketball game, significantly. If it's football, you know, soccer, you're, you're four goals ahead. Like, it's a really comfortable lead for the sport. But you already know that everything just changed, and you feel really bad about the potential for your team to win. Yeah, that momentum shift... Has been and usually you know the point where it clicks, but when you sit and you sit back and you think about it because you're watching the bet you made with your bookie go away, you really knew like midway through the second quarter the momentum was beginning to shift, but it didn't click. Yeah, that's what went on for the last twenty years. That's because this is a much longer timeline than a two-hour sporting event. For the last twenty years, call that half one. The BRICS nations in China have been in, incredibly moving their momentum forward, and and we've been in decline. But so have the rest of the G7 nations, okay? And then we just had the the streams just crossed. The BRICS nations combined to now have a higher GDP than the G7 nations. First time in history since we've kept records like this. Okay, that's the click. And it doesn't matter that China's well behind the U.S. The momentum has shifted. The other thing is, Chris there was talking about how you know we need to make things. We need to manufacture things. We don't build things in America. This is the huge problem we have with that. There's, there's multiples, but let's kind of look at them as a mass together, like a giant tumor infecting our country. One, we have completely convinced people that such work is beneath them. Hence the whole narrative, well, if you didn't have illegal aliens, who would cut your grass? I don't know, bitch. I cut my own grass, right? I remember back when I was in corporate America and I had people working for me. There were high net worth individuals working for me. And I remember one of these guys said that to me. And I knew where this dude lived. He lived in like an HOA, pretty small lot. 
And he knew I had a much bigger piece of property. I didn't have as big as I do now, but a pretty large piece of property. He said, well, who'd cut your grass? I'm like, I cut. he couldn't believe I cut my own grass. He couldn't believe the guy he worked for would stoop to the level of cutting his own grass, let alone working in a manufacturing facility all day long. So we've convinced the vast majority of Americans that that kind of work is beneath them. We've also given everybody a degree. You know, they said that Gen Z's debt is piling faster than anybody else. Think about how old Gen Z is. So you tell me what kind of debt you think they have. Do you think they have debt on real estate? Or do you think they have debt on worthless degrees that they're pursuing because they're part of probably the last wave of brainwashed children signing their life away for forty to fifty thousand dollars a year to a forty to ninety thousand dollars a year to attend college? Which one do you think? Where do you think the debt is being racked up? So it's you're buying a degree that is a declining value. That's what that. So we've got that problem. Yeah. And on top of it, we have a regulatory environment that is inhospitable for manufacturing facilities. And hence what we end up with because of that is if you work in a manufacturing facility, it's either really expensive to produce in this country or it's actually really bad. It's a really shitty place to work. Because they're flying under the radar from all the reg, or they're finding some loophole to operate in. So then you're treated like slave labor in China, which is part of how this is competed with, right? Or it's very, very expensive, and it limits your market. And, and I, I don't pretend to know how to fix this. And at the same time, our, our gimmick of being able to buy anything we want by printing and lending to ourselves is dying. So this is that momentum shift. This is not going away, and in another 90 days, you will be shocked at how far we have fallen in just three months. Gradually, then suddenly. This is the shift to suddenly, and it's going to be faster than most people think. And the whole fix the money thing, I agree, but you know what? They're not going to fix the money. Let me say this one more time. Just so we'll go through some of the slow kids, thick skulls. They will never, ever, ever infinity fix the money. The money will have to fail and be reconstituted, which is the plan. And the plan on reconstitution is not to fix the money. It's to fix your ass with control of the money. So you better find yourself an alternative reserve for capital and finance. And I'll tell you, I think you got three choices. The best one's Bitcoin. Some of you cannot wrap your head around that. That's fine. That would then would leave gold and silver, and they're about equal, in my view. And then you've got real estate that comes with the cost of maintenance and, and, and taxation and whatever. But if you can offset that, that would also go in that reserve basket. And then you've got lifestyle design, which is all the shit, your food production, everything. That's it. There is nothing else. There is no paper currency to run to, because don't think even though China's had that momentum shift, you really want to be holding Chinese currency either. You don't. I wish I had better news. I don't. This is that moment that we've talked about for decades now. And it is now. And if you always knew it was coming, but you always thought you had more time, your time is gone. It's over. Now, this isn't the end of the world. This isn't the United States dries up and blows away in the wind like a dust bunny. But this is a massive shift in the world order. I'm sorry to say, the new world order. Oh my God, Jack's got a... No, just call The order of the world is a thing. There is a world order. 
It is changing right now. You are living through the fourth turning. Please be prepared to deal with it. Let's go on. Let's talk about something different. Let's talk about somebody that lucked into something but wants to make sure that they don't cause themselves a problem with it due to like herbicide persistence or something like that. Jeff Lawton will talk about it. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Jordan, lowest place on earth, 400 meters below sea level. I'm at the Green of the Desert Project, just arrived, and I have new videos coming out. So, um, yeah, I've got a, qu- a question here um, in relation to potting mix from a large retailer in Australia, and um, they throw away their uh, potting mix with their pots, which someone collects, but the uh, person asking the question has got access to the potting mix and the dead plants, and um, it's uh, 100 to 300 litres a, a week which is a, a good amount, and he wants to know whether it's kind of safe to use. He says there's worms in the pots quite often, which is a really good sign because that means there's good microorganisms. There's got to be for worms to be eating something. That's what they eat. Um, it's not bad stuff, I'd say, but it'd be great to bring it uh, up into a sort of juicier uh, mix. Uh, I'd, I'd combine it in a compost. Um, apparently, they've got horse manure. They've got some chicken bedding. Um, they've got old round bales that might be a bit rotten so they'll break up a bit because you don't want long straw in a compost too hard to turn so I'd make a, a mix up and include the uh, potting mix and, and, and sort of juice it up a bit I add some high nitrogen like manures um, the chicken, the horse um, any old lucerne that you've got um, any interesting stuff you can add um, even some dead animals or fish or um, any components that rot really quick going to be high in nitrogen um, you say you've got sawdust as well that'll really add carbon so you can make your mix with your potting mix and get it to the right temperature um, and hold it at that temperature as long as possible or make it a quick turner and make it up uh, keep it standing for four days at the right moisture just squeezable get almost or just get a drip out of a big handful when you give it a hard squeeze hold it there at that moisture leave it for four days cover it if it's raining um and um and cover it if it's getting really hot full you know full sun keep it a bit moister that way or or drier if it's really raining it's got got can't change the moisture content and then turn it every other day after the first four days. Turn it every other day for 14 days. That's a quick Berkeley turnover mix. And um, it should be juiced up and ready to go. Um, sounds like a nice component. I'd like to have some myself to mix in with my mixes. I might look at my local hardware of the same franchise and see what they got. Um, yeah, nice waste product. Um, no problem at all. Um, just in case there's sort of funny residues here and there. Just put it through a compost, juice it up a bit. Um, if you don't want to do such a quick turn, um, turn in every other day for 14 days um, and a four-day stand at the start, then use a thermometer, get it up to temperature, get it over 55 degrees centigrade and keep it below 65. So between 55 and 65, don't turn it. Just hold it. And as soon as it goes higher or lower, turn it and hold it in that temperature range. Um, you might find it will take longer but less turns and you'll get the same result. There you go. Good stuff. So I'd say that that's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be give it a good inoculation with a high-quality compost tea. And, and, and anything like that, the composting process, 
soil microorganisms, what have you. You're going to take something, but what people are concerned about, for those that are new to this, is that if I'm getting a waste stream like that conventional, it ain't the chemical fertilizers that are in it. It's persistent herbicides that people are concerned about because a lot of the material used to make compost and what have you, you know, it comes from ag waste. It may have been sprayed with glyphosate or something like that. I have seen people, you know, that got a hold of bad material and had retardant growth of their plants and stuff. And you look at it and you go, that's probably persistent herbicide in that mix. And, you know, there's the Paul Wheaton scorched earth opinion that all you can do is bring in dump trucks and haul it away. And that's not how nature works, Paul. I'm sorry. I love you, but you're wrong about that. Um, I've seen people do that, do a good drench with a great compost tea, about double the rate you would do just for a regular garden, and boom. Because what happens is the things that you're concerned about become inert. They're not gone. They're locked up by the compost process and by the soil microorganisms. So whatever you can do, if you have a waste stream like that, to either put it through a compost uh, process to give it time to age, to have it further broken down. But, God, to get that much material, I would be in love with it. Because... The other thing is one of the things that breaks it down the fastest is just UV light. So I would personally here with broad acreage, I would just be spreading it everywhere, you know, thin and, and that way it gets exposure and then it just keeps building up the soil levels. Uh, but anyway, let's move on to something else. Um, there is a big concern. I'm going to let Josh talk about Josh the Renegade Butcher and I'm going to come back and I'm going to even further mitigate the concerns. But when people get into butchering animals, they get into they get kind of really spooky about, you know, could there be something bad, something tainted, something that'll make me sick or something that'll kill us or whatever. I'm just going to say humanity has been clubbing and eating animals mostly raw for the majority of our existence on the planet. And somehow the species is here. And with that in mind, take it away, Josh, and I'll come back with a little bit of an add-on. Hey there, TSPers. It's Josh, the Renegade Butcher, coming back to you with another question on the TSP Expert Council. I have a question today from James. He writes from Australia, and he says that he's interested in butchering his own sheep, also has the opportunity to harvest wild deer and wild pig, but when butchering an animal, either wild or domestic, could I advise what a person should be looking for in a carcass to ensure it's safe for human consumption? He's tried researching this and is yet to find a clear advice on the topic. He's also interested in, is it safe to consume wild pig, given that their diet can often include meat? Uh, kind of a multifaceted question, and I'll do my best to answer it for you, James. I'm not super familiar with uh, Australia being in Texas. However, there are some things that kind of cover the bases between, you know, everywhere. Uh, that said, it depends. I know everybody hates hearing that, but it depends. It always does. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into whether an animal is safe to consume, and it is important to pay attention when you're doing the processing to those signs so that if something is off and you need to discard the carcass, it sucks to do so, but it's always better to do that than to get sick from it. I want to point out, though, that the most important thing, probably far more important, far more likely to actually get you sick, is to make sure that you are handling that meat in a hygienic manner and getting that cooled down as quickly as possible. Keep everything clean, keep your hands clean, your equipment clean, keep the animal clean, free of hair, dirt, feces, anything out in the field, and get it either on ice or in a cooler, whatever you have access to, as fast as you can, and get the core temperature of that meat down. 
Uh, I know Australia tends to be on the warmer side. It's much like Texas in that way. And I have seen far more people have issues with meat going off because of handling than because it was a sick animal. That said, I have run into animals that were unhygienic or, or sick in the past. And some of the telltale signs that you can look for are going to be infections, uh, open wounds, uh, abscesses. And the odd abscess here or there isn't going to be the end of the world. You can trim around that. But if you see it spread throughout large areas of the animal, that's going to be a problem. If you start seeing dark veining all throughout the animal that indicates blood poisoning, that's a problem. If you see the uh, the lymph nodes and any of the glands are look to be large and inflamed, and I know that's hard to tell if you're not used to looking at them, but that's something to definitely pay attention to. If you see odd spotting on organs like the liver or the lungs, that could indicate a parasite, it could indicate an infection, and it's probably best to go ahead and just discard the animal at that point. This is a situation where it's always better to at least get a baseline of what is normal before you, you know, jump into saying processing wild game and trying to figure it out on your own, not discouraging you in any way. But if you have access to others who are hunters, who are butchers or hiring a mobile processor or someone to come out and walk you through the process and show you what looks and feels normal, that is going to be a huge feather in your cap to really kind of give you that confidence and also give you what you should be looking for to make this whole thing kind of turn out right. That said, trust your intuition, trust your senses. Humans have been consuming meat for the longest time, probably as long as we've been humans, and we innately do know when something isn't right. If something smells off and it just smells like an infection or rot, you're going to know if something feels not quite like fresh meat, feels slimy, if uh, something just looks strange, it's always better to be safe than sorry. Um, another important factor, though, is going to be what has that animal been eating? Has it been consuming things that have been recently sprayed? If it's a domestic animal, is it one that's been uh, given uh, some sort of medications? Uh, and is it past those withdrawal periods? And so those questions are going to be things that uh, you can't really answer when it comes to a wild animal very well, but it's going to be less common that that is an issue, too. Uh, wild animals tend to only, uh, I, in my experience, uh, graze on things that haven't been recently sprayed, so that's not usually going to be a, a big problem, and there's not really a lot of folks out there vaccinating uh, wild animals. Uh, that said, it like I said, reach out, get some help if you can do so. As far as the wild pigs and eating meat... Yeah, I don't really see it being a big issue. Some folks make it a big uh, a big deal. I don't particularly think it's going to be a big issue. Um, here in Texas, we do a lot of wild pig processing, and I promise you if they run into meat out in the field, they will consume it. But like anything else, I mean, if, if you think about it, chickens are, are omnivores as well. They'll happily eat meat. Pigs are pretty dang good at digesting meat and not getting sick from it. Now, does that mean that they can't possibly spread something? No. Now, I don't know uh, how common trichinosis is in uh, Australia. I know that in the States, it's uh, pretty, pretty rare now, especially in the domestic pig population. Some folks still do worry about it in the wild pig population. That said, though, you have to remember that the majority of meat that you're going to be consuming from these animals, you're cooking, I, I, would, I would hope, you know. So... Pay attention to what is going to be a safe temperature for the meat that you're actually cooking. 
um, without translating it to Celsius. I know 145 Fahrenheit is the recommended minimum for pork over here. You can even go a little bit higher. If you're a little bit nervous, it, it doesn't hurt to uh, cook something well. You know, if you take something like a, a wild hog pork shoulder and you throw it in a slow cooker and you're allowing that thing to cook till it falls off the bone, there's nothing that's going to survive in that that's going to be harmful to you. And, and if there is, well, that could probably exist in commercial meat as well and be just as harmful. So it's highly unlikely that you're going to run into an issue. I don't think you have a lot that you would need to worry about. I would say that maybe, maybe two or three percent of animals that I encounter in, in my work professionally would be one I would deem unfit for human consumption, and that's probably high. So typically not going to be a big issue. Just like I said, trust your instincts, and if you can, reach out and get help. I'd also like to encourage you to check out uh, my podcast, to check out the Telegram group that's connected to it, the uh, Liberty Meat Chat, and that is a great resource if you are wondering what to do in a situation like this. Uh, if you're faced with something like that, we had a, a community member recently that uh, had never processed sheep before, and they'd done a few deer. So it's a similar process, and they ran into a few snags. The second one went a lot better because they were able to post pictures. We have multiple butchers in the group, lots of hunters, lots of home processors. And there's usually somebody around that's going to be able to pop in, answer a question. So if you're feeling unsure and you just want that community to lean on, that is a good one. But reach out to your local community, reach out to the online community, and just get out there and do it because the only way to really learn this and to to build that confidence and that trust in your own intuition when it comes to judging that meat is going to be to go out and do it all right guys i really appreciate it i hope this answered some questions for you if you guys have any other questions related to meat spice barbecue or anything like that be sure to send them over to jack for josh the renegade butcher and don't forget that if you are an msb member Use that discount if you buy anything over at renegadebutcher.com. That's including spices, coffee, any of the fun stuff over there, any of that merchandise. So I want you guys to go ahead and get your use out of that because I want to support the TSP community just like they've supported me over the years. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jack. And everybody, have a wonderful day. Keep your knives sharp and keep your mind sharper. So a few things I'll add. Again, I've been... I've been doing this one way or another since I was 11 years old. I butchered my first deer when I was 11 years old. I should say I got to butcher. I mean, I wanted to do it. I wanted to learn how. And I have never had a problem with any meat that I've ever produced. I produce meat on my own farm. I've done a lot of hunting, etc. And I think this is something that is mostly the concern lies in having never done it and never seen an animal go from this is an animal to this is a pork chop yeah and so there's just a natural concern i'll do something wrong what have you and and, and like josh said we've been doing this he said since we were humans the truth is by the, uh, the the archaeological record it appears that we've been doing it since before we were modern humans it was the it was the hominids that ate meat that turned into people if you believe that if i know some of you don't but that's the scientific uh, conclusion here um and that that conclusion predates science going woke so uh, i'm i tend to agree with it the other thing to think about here though is you, what josh said you know when something's wrong people say well how do i know an egg's wrong you'll know when you drop that into a bowl it'll either look bad or it'll smell bad and either way you're gonna throw it out 
Like we, we, we do have this intrinsic ability to assess a situation, know what to eat and not to eat, and trust the gut. The last thing, though, is with the pigs and trichinosis, I do make sure that I cook at a temperature high enough whenever we're talking about wild pork to make sure that it's not a risk because uh, quite a few mammals can be carriers and infected with trichinosis, and pigs are among the higher. However, there's a couple things to understand with that. So are other animals that are routinely hunted and eaten like bears. Okay, Bears also can carry trichinosis. The other thing is that most of the cases of trichinosis prior to like science figuring out why do people get trichinosis were actually in domestic pigs fed garbage. And if you think about human settlement, human sanitation, lack thereof, the way garbage is handled, it's actually far more likely the pig would become infected with trichinosis being fed that way, which is not done anymore. It, you know, uncooked, raw garbage given to the pigs, and, and meat garbage. That was the other thing. Innards and stuff like that laying around and whatever. Then a, a deer gets killed in the woods, and what's left behind the pig eats. It's uh, a lot less likely. They're not really predators. If they can catch it, they'll kill it and eat it, but they're just that's not really what they are, though. They'll kill small fawns and stuff like that. Again, risk of infection there is about zero. Um, there has not been a person who uh, died of trichinosis in the United States since the 1960s to kind of drive it home. But it is a risk, and it is a really awful disease to encounter. It's, it's really a parasite. And there is a solution. If you don't want to murder wild pork, but you also don't want to risk trichinosis, and that is that this idea that these organisms have a temperature that needs to be reached, and anything south of that temperature won't kill them, is wrong. Okay, If, a, if an organism will die it, at one minute over 145, it will probably, you got to look it up to see exactly where you're at, but it will probably die at 140 if it was held there for a much longer period of time, or even 135, like, you understand this is a gradient. These, these organisms start to die. Now, there are things like botulism that you've got to get over a certain temperature period. Okay, But these things like trichinosis, like other things that we worry about that we will pasteurize for. Again, water would be a perfect example. So everybody knows you got to boil water for 10 minutes. No, you don't. you got to boil water for one second. In fact, by the time water boils, before water boils, it will be safe. Because the time it takes to move from about 160, where pasteurization begins, from 160 to 212 is so long, everything's dead by the time you get there. With meat like this, if you were to hold it at, let's say, 140 degrees, because you want pink pork, for an hour, you're good. I can tell you that. How would you do that, though? Sous vide. Sous vide. So if you want to go a little bit more rare with a cut like a pork... And you're concerned about this. Again, if it's domestic pork in the United States, you probably shouldn't be. But if you are, that's your... That's, and by the way, it makes fantastic freaking pork that way. Anyway, moving on. Let's hear from John Pugliano on Whole Life. Hello, TSP. I've got several questions in the hopper. Today, though, I'm going to focus on just one question. And although this question deals specifically with whole or permanent life insurance, I want to spend time on this because I think it has broader appeal and general application that's applicable to everybody in our community. 
Because one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make and repeat time and again, and this is not just in investing, but in many purchases that they make over their lifetime, is that they approach things from an emotional standpoint, which is usually highly impacted by our natural tendencies of fear and greed. And so we succumb to sales pitches and marketing nonsense instead of focusing on the facts and the reality and taking our emotions out of it. So this next question, it comes from Don. It's about life insurance. But ignore that aspect of it and take in what I say about not being susceptible to marketing and strong-arm sales tactics. And whenever you hear me say marketing, you can replace that with whatever term you think is more appropriate, maybe something like bullshit, or I'm sure Jack could add some very colorful and descriptive language. So here's what Don is asking. And I'm just going to read the question that he sent me. He says, last week you mentioned you were against whole life insurance. Can you explain why you don't like these policies? And then in the detailed information, Don actually answers his own question and makes the very case for why I'm not a fan of whole life insurance. And Don, I don't remember exactly what I said in the segment you're talking about. I'm pretty sure I probably didn't say I was against whole life insurance because I'm not against it as a concept. I just don't think it's appropriate for most people. And again, it has to do with marketing. Now, before I even get into that, let's read what Don wrote himself. He says, I just got my annual dividend from my life insurance company on a whole life policy, but the policy still seems expensive for what I get. Initially, I thought the main draw was the cash value accumulation, ability to draw against it if needed, and tax-free wealth transfer to my children. The more I think about it, though, seems like there may be better ways to do each of these things. Well, Don, what you just said is what I hear from so many people that succumb to a sales pitch and get their arm twisted into buying life insurance, and then after contributing to it for years and years, they end up with buyer's remorse. So you asked in the question to me, explain why I don't like these policies? Well, you just did an excellent job explaining it. The bottom line on all this is that whole life insurance, or a better name for it, is permanent life insurance. It's not that I'm against it. I think it has very good and useful purposes. But those purposes are very narrow and very specific. The salesmen that push these policies try and shoehorn everyone into these categories, even when they don't apply for most people. Probably going to run out of time here, but let me run through some of these. One reason why permanent life insurance may make sense is if you want to insure your insurability. I'm not even going to get into the specifics of that, but it may have application, especially to younger people, that have high risk for premature death, but the disease or the illness hasn't manifested itself yet, and so they still would qualify to be covered by an insurance policy. So that could be a real-world situation, but it doesn't apply to most people. Most people can easily use much more affordable, lower-cost, long-term term insurance. Okay, another big reason that's pitched for these whole life policies or permanent life insurance policies is a state or capital gains tax avoidance. Now, it depends on what state you live in, but from a federal income tax standpoint, to really get the full benefit of protecting your estate, you need to have some wealth well in excess of 25, you know, $30 million. And even then, depending upon your circumstances, there could likely be simpler and much more cost-effective ways 
to mitigate taxes by using things like trusts and the step-up capital gains tax upon death. When it comes to things like estate and more especially capital gains taxes, you have to remember that every tax mitigation strategy comes with a cost, and you need to plug that into an Excel spreadsheet and see how much the mitigation strategy is costing you versus what you'd end up just paying the government. In a lot of cases, the savings isn't that great, and especially in terms of permanent life insurance, when you realize that to get that mitigation strategy, you're turning the sovereignty of your money over to the insurance company. Think about that. And this takes on one of the next huge myths and marketing techniques that are perpetrated by that insurance industry. The whole concept of being your own banker and borrowing from yourself. That's marketing. Whenever you pay your premiums to the insurance company, that's no longer your money. The only claim that you have to those premiums that you've paid over the years is a very specific term, and it's cash surrender balance. And I bet it's substantially less than your accumulated premiums over the years. That's the only amount of money that legally you are entitled to. That's your money. What you're borrowing against, in addition to that cash balance, is the death benefit payment. And that death benefit payment is not your money. Now, sure, you can borrow against it, and there'll be some rules and some stipulations and probably some red tape and likely some fees. But you're not technically borrowing from yourself. You're borrowing against the death benefit. It's a subtle difference, but it is a difference, and you are turning the sovereignty of your money over to the insurance company. Another marketing myth that's perpetrated as a selling point for permanent life insurance is that it's a method to diversify your investments. Well, it's only a method to diversify your investments if you don't have very much knowledge about investing. And if that's the case, well, again, maybe that's good for you. It isn't that difficult to construct a diversified and very cost-effective portfolio at just about any discount broker. You see, the fact of the matter is, your money is no safer with the insurance company than it is in a well-diversified portfolio that you can construct yourself. I mean, where do you think the life insurance company is taking your premiums and reinvesting them? They're just putting them back into the marketplace. They're owning stocks and bonds and real estate, and while on a daily or a monthly basis, they'll report a stable value to you, but in reality, that's not reflecting the actual performance of where the money's being invested. They're just putting up a firewall between what your statement says and what they're actually invested in. For example, right now, a lot of people are really worried about the banking industry. Well, those same things of unrealized losses on bonds, whether they be treasuries or mortgage-backed securities, these things that the banks are experiencing, well, those things are having an even worse impact on insurance companies and pension funds. It's just that no one's talking about it. And think about all the commercial property, the retail space, the big city corporate office buildings that have high levels of vacancy now. A lot of those assets are on the books of insurance companies. So in my opinion, the diversification that's offered you through a permanent life insurance policy is just a marketing mirage. And all that marketing and all the supposed guarantees of how your capital is being preserved and how you're avoiding or mitigating taxes, that all comes at a cost. And that's why you're not happy 
with a cash surrender balance that you see in your statement. So I want to reiterate here. It's not that permanent life insurance doesn't have uses. It's just that those benefits come with a cost and they're not necessarily appropriate for all the people that these policies are sold to. And that's why you're probably constantly being bombarded with advertisements, whether it's direct mail, emails, phone calls, pop-up ads, ads all over social media, all inviting you to a free lunch or a seminar about how not to pay taxes or how to get more out of your Social Security. But the bottom line, all those are marketing and sales advertisements to sell permanent life insurance. So before you sign that contract, to make sure that you avoid buyer's remorse, do your homework and know what you're getting into. Why, as always, thanks for the questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Yeah, it's it's marketing more than anything else. The whole wealth transfer tax-free, it doesn't apply to 99% of people that would buy this this crap from some agent somewhere. The person that that applies to is going to have a team of financial advisors because their net worth is in the tens of millions of dollars. I believe it's 11 or $16 million that you can bequeath with no income tax, no matter what form it's in as inheritance. Okay, so unless you're you're worth more than ten million dollars, that's just out the window and gone. Anybody telling to you is lying to you, and they're either lying to you due to intent or they're due to their training, and they believe their own bullshit when they tell you it. That, that that's one, uh, though it's just gone right out the window. Uh, the the thing to know uh, when you encounter an insurance agent that's very enthusiastic about selling you whole life is that agent will probably receive somewhere between 60 and 80% commission on your entire first year premium, the one you're talking to. And the actual payout to the agency may in fact be 100% or more. Because insurance agents, when you start as an insurance agent, you work for some other insurance agent. And there's an agency model. And even your independent agents or whatever, there's an agency model somewhere in there. And so what ends up happening is even though that person is getting, say, 60%, 70% of that premium, which is a hell of an incentive, and, and they're all on commission-only sales. So they sell or they starve. So, boy, are they going to sell it because it's a big paycheck every time they write a policy. Yeah? And if they don't write one, they starve. Literally. Like, it is a feast and famine industry. Now... The other thing is that agent is looking if they survive, unless they, and if they don't, it'll get rolled up into the agency at building a book of business across time. And they will receive a residual of about 10% for as long as they maintain whatever requirements there are with the company they're working for, a residual of 10% on whole life. It is the best paying insurance you can write as an agent. No matter what else you offer, it is the place that you can pay all your bills and send your kids to college. By telling people they're saving money by throwing money away. And I have done the math over and over again, and there is almost no situation where even relatively conservative investments, that if you take and you buy term, long-term term as a young person, and you take the differential that you would be and you invest the differential, you come out ahead every time. So it is throwing money away. This whole banking on yourself is nonsense, is bullshit, you know, where they say infinite banking or whatever. Borrowing against your policy is just stupid. If you have the capital, you can borrow against capital anytime you want. There's nothing special about it being whole life. Okay? It is a gimmick. 
it might have some specific applications, but the person telling you that it's the best thing for you is probably lying. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. Next up, let's hear about putting minerals back into our water from Dr. Ken Berry. Hello, Jack and the TSB crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Ed about drinking water and should I add electrolytes and minerals back into this water. So Ed is 99% nomadic, lives in a converted bus and gets his water from uh, Walmart, Kroger. Sometimes it's reverse osmosis. Sometimes it's just uh, distilled or boiled or whatever, whatever the water he's buying. The question is, should I add some electrolytes and minerals back into this water? My answer to this is probably yes. Is it mandatory or necessary? Maybe not, but out of an abundance of caution, I recommend that people do add electrolytes and minerals back into the water that they drink. Uh, at my house, we all drink reverse osmosis water and I add back in Keto Chow's daily mineral drops. And there's two reasons that I do that. What we're all trying to do here is mimic what our ancestors did for the last three million years. Because their their activity, their behavior, what they drank, what they ate, that's what made us the humans we are today. Now, there's two things that they did that most of us don't do. The first thing is, is the, the water they drank was exclusively groundwater from springs, streams, mud puddles, rivers. Uh, that's That was the only water they had access to. So that water is inherently rich in electrolytes and minerals, uh, minerals that have seeped up out of the rock. But also it can be rich in uh, diarrhea-inducing microbes. And so most of us don't want to drink groundwater today, and I perfectly understand that. I'm one of the people that doesn't really want to drink groundwater because I don't want to have the shits for a month. The second thing that our ancestors did that we, most of us, don't do is they ate blood routinely. Very often they would drink the blood fresh from a kill, uh, they did not have a block and tackle a million years ago to hang up a 2,000-pound megafauna that they had just killed and drain it like we do today. And so the meat was full of the blood of the animal, and the, the organs were full of the blood of the animal. Blood, as you may know, is a rich source of electrolytes and minerals. So that was part of their daily diet, and it's, it's uh, mostly not part of anyone's daily diet today. Everyone wants their meat well-drained. If there's a little, uh, if you can see a vein full of blood in a, in a chicken leg, most people won't even eat that. Uh, they've forgotten their heritage. They forgot who they are as a species, and they think that blood is gross or blood is dangerous. They don't understand that blood is one of the most nutrient-dense foods they could possibly eat on planet Earth. And so since the majority of people refuse to drink groundwater currently and refuse to eat or drink blood currently, I recommend that you uh, doctor up your water with something like Keto Chow's Mineral Drops. Uh, they also, there's several different uh, companies selling electrolyte powders and liquids. And I think out of an abundance of caution, you should... Uh, use one of these products daily just to make sure you're getting plenty of electrolytes and minerals. Hope this answer helped. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. The the only thing that I'll I'll add to that because I kind of agree if you're if you're drinking water is stripped down with mineral for some reason you're all drinking bottled water distilled water whatever you know we drink a very high mineral content well water so I, I don't really worry about this very much plus the rest of our diet as Ken said. But there is this myth that if you're drinking like RO water or you're drinking distilled water, 
Not only will the water not provide you minerals, but it will strip minerals out of your body. This is retarded. It's not the person that tells you that should be ignored forever with any biochemical nutritional advice because they do not know what they're talking about. They may be right about other things, but you can't trust that they are because they've just demonstrated easily corrected ignorance, and you cannot trust that person. It doesn't make any sense. And what they'll tell you is, well, if you test the urine from somebody who's drinking that stuff, it'll be high in mineral content. That's because your urine's high in mineral content. It's not because it was stripped out of you. Now, again, if your primary source of mineral is water and you go to a non-mineralized water, well, then, yeah, you might have a deficiency, but it's not because the water's taken away. It's because you're not taking enough of it in. It's not like you have this vacuum that then starts sucking minerals out of you. I don't know where that came from, except probably people that want to sell something, you know, like whole life. Just saying. Uh, next up, what if you want to plant a tremendous number of cuttings? It's not really that many, a couple hundred, of hybrid willow or any other uh plant that can be planted through simply sticking hard cuttings. What's the best way to go about that? Well, you know who I'm going to have you answer that, don't you? Nick Ferguson. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with an answer on planting several hundred hybrid willow cuttings. And this question comes from James, and he says, Hey Jack, I believe this would fall under Nick Ferguson's category. I'm planning, I'm going to plant several hundred hybrid willow cuttings. What's the best way to plant just the little sticks? I live in Zone 4, Eastern Washington, in a snow belt. My planting area is southeast-facing. We have fairly rocky soil that I don't know if you use something to poke a hole first and then put the stick in, or do you just jam the stick in the ground and let it make it or not. I don't really have the greatest back, so bending over several hundred times to plant trees is not the most entertaining to me, as well as bending over to put something into the ground and then putting the tree into the ground. I figured Nick has planted a mother load of cuttings, and was hoping he made a homemade tool or something of the sort to help facilitate, or maybe just some helpful tips. Thank you, and have a great day. Well, I have planted a mother load of trees, <clears throat> and um, honestly, the quick and easy way to plant thousands of seedling trees, or in this case, hardwood cuttings taken in winter, is to use a T-handle dibble bar planter, and this is the same kind of tool that the U.S. Forestry Service uses to replant forests, and it's pretty quick and easy. The only thing I do to speed things up and prevent needing to bend over is to take a three-quarter inch or maybe even a one-inch diameter stick of PVC and tie it to the handle of the tool with some duct tape or cable ties. And then when you jab the tool in the ground, you use leverage to kind of open up a little v-shaped channel in the ground um there's kind of a hole there now and the pvc is set right there you drop the cutting down the pvc pipe and it drops directly into the hole that you just opened up right where you want it there's no chance you're going to drop it from you know three or four feet up in the air and it bounces off to the side and you lose a cutting or you got to stoop over and pick it up and stick it in the hole just simply drop it down that little tube it hits the ground right in the hole, and then you simply step on the side of the hole to smush the soil back together. Um, or, if it's really tough ground, you might have to make a second cut uphill of the first cut, because we're stacking functions here. If you do that cut uphill of the first cut and use the leverage to close the first cut, 
Well, what happens is you leave this convenient uphill little cut to channel surface runoff into the root zone of that new cutting. It's like a mini micro swale type concept. Easy peasy, no bending over, just keep, you know, a bundle of cuttings handy in a belt pouch and I'd have a backpack full of the rest of your cuttings and enjoy planting. It should be around 6 to 12 seconds to plant one tree at a leisurely pace. Three seconds if you're a speed demon and maybe 24 seconds or longer if you have to do a double cut to close the first hole or if you have really rocky soil and you have to kind of make two attempts to get one hole in the ground. So, um, yeah, I just uh, crunched some of the numbers for you before recording this. Um, and let's let's just assume you're going to plant about a thousand cuttings um, and we're going to say in between three seconds to 24 seconds. Um, I'm just going to round up the hours. So my numbers show even less time than what I'm going to tell you. Anywhere from one hour to maybe seven hours to plant a thousand cuttings. And that's anywhere from three seconds. Man, you just shot that hole in there and dropped the cutting in there and you went on to the next one all the way up to like half a minute per cutting just to get the holes opened up and get the cutting in there and get the hole closed. Um, now, I just want to make sure that all the listeners realize we're talking about cuttings of these willows taken in winter when the tree is dormant. We're only taking first year growth. Most any growth will work, but just expect the highest rooting chances if you use first year growth. So if you're coppicing and cutting the trees to a stump every winter, like I suggest, then everything that grows will be first year wood and it should root very well. I sell eight inch cuttings and the extra cutoffs um, when I was trimming everything to length went in a pot with regular potting mix. I had some little four inch pieces and some as small as two inches and I just jabbed them in this in this pot that was sitting next to the area where I was working. I just saw it there and I said, eh, we'll just see what happens. I jabbed all of them in there. Those probably just a little dozen cuttings I just had laying around. Stuck those in soil about a month, maybe a month and a half. Um, and they're all like 18 inches tall, maybe two foot tall. Uh, if you can't root these cuttings of hybrid willow, I'm sorry, there's probably no hope for you. So that's it. Uh, I just use a dibble planter and I use that little trick with the PVC tape, uh, the, not PVC tape, the PVC taped to the handle to drop the cutting directly into the spot where it needs to go. No bending over, no misplaced trees. I have a whole write-up on how to plant trees on my website with a link to a um, a dibble planter. And if you actually want to use an auger drill bit, I have one on there. I think that's 32 inches long. So, you know, if you want to just use a little auger with a cordless drill, you can drill a hole in the ground. Um, those are also really easy to use. And then you could do the, the trick with the PVC um, and drop the the cutting down there, down in the hole that you just augered a hole in the ground. Um, and so both of those solutions should work very well with no bending over. Um, so you can find that um, right up on my website, and the website is rareplantstore.com. And if you just scroll down on the main page at uh, just above the Frequently Asked Questions section, you'll see a link to How to Plant More Trees. Um, how to Plant Trees, sorry. 
Um, and, uh, and there's a whole write up there with, uh, links to where you can find the auger and the dibble bar planter and information on how deep to plant them and all kinds of stuff like that. So hope that helps. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. So uh, he talked mostly about the T-handled planter. He also mentioned his article includes a, a link to an auger. I have that article for you in the show notes. I also have a double bar planting tool that I really like. It's a little bit different than one uh, Nick is recommending uh, linked in the uh, show notes as well. So you guys can check into that. I would like to say that planting these things is really easy. We did it here. Now, we had a lot of hands. We did it during the, the workshop. It didn't take very long. We actually just used some pieces of rebar. Because my my places, these were going really hard, compacted, uh, rock-filled soil. We just took a hammer and tapped a rebar down about as deep as one of the planting and then dropped the stick in and kicked the sides in. It, it didn't take very long. A thousand of them is a lot. Uh, but remember, it can be done over time, so don't let it overwhelm you. It's pretty easy to put a stick in the ground. And in most soil, I would actually say that you probably just could shove them in. Um I don't see any reason that wouldn't work in most places that you would be planting. Some places with hard pan clay might require something to open it up like a dibble planter. Uh, but most places you probably could just stick the cuttings. And they do root really well. All the uh, the stuff we stuck is beginning to grow here. The the hybrid poplar is is growing but the willow is taking off so it's interesting that he mentioned that we have willow i mean you can literally use willow buds to create rooting hormone for other plants it, it's about the easiest thing if you can mint if you can root mint you can root first season growth hardwood cuttings from from willow hybrid or otherwise all right let's talk about well getting your fingers dirty like planting trees it looks quote from will rogers he said one time, and he's a lot of great quotes. I should quote him more often, honestly. What the country needs is dirtier fingernails and cleaner minds. And again, I want to rewind back in time. And I want to think about the fact that whenever Will Rogers made this statement was prior to 1935. And it was probably just based on his age, his timeline, everything, probably sometime in the 20s. Probably before the Great Depression started. It's probably about that time that he would have said this. And I want you to think of the way you would have viewed the country in the 1920s as far as morality. And I, I think that while there were certainly still some things in America going on that we uh, we've actually corrected today, where we're actually better off, in many ways it was a much more moral time as far as just the way that people conducted their lives and their businesses and everything else. We're still in a world of hard money, for instance. So that, that right there alone had a... But, but even in this time, Will Rogers, like, we need more people out doing stuff and working with the virtue of hard work. And we have a morality problem. What I find interesting about that is I do believe that moral decay is not something that happens rapidly. I think like a lot of things, back to Hemingway, gradually then suddenly, it appears to the person who's not really paying very close attention as though things are pretty much the way they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Ah, new kids, new ideas, new things, it always happens, but there's not really like this chronic cancer of decay of morality. 
But if you're my age, a little bit younger even, you know, 30s, 40s, or older, you've watched rapid, rancid, moral decay of Western civilization. And you've seen more of it in the last 10 years than the prior 30 combined, in my opinion. The last 10 years have been an absolute destruction of the moral fabric of society. That doesn't mean that everybody's participating, but the dominant in-your-face culture is now one of complete moral depravity. And you guys, if you're new to the show, you might be like, oh, guy's a prude or something. No, I'm not. I'm the last person you would call a prude. You know, I use big boy words, and I, I don't I don't follow all the rules. I actually teach to break the rules. I'm a big old scary anarchist, all right? So I'm not a prude. But I do believe there are certain things that whether there's a law for them or against them is irrelevant. They're immoral. They're absolutely immoral. I think what's going on with children in the school system today, and beyond just the drag queen transsexual crap, is immoral. It's depravity. It's depravity. When I look at society and what society values today, it, it's it, a lot of it is depravity. You know, it, it just it's just depravity. When I look at the fact that men no longer wish to be fathers, I find that to be depravity. I understand why they feel that way. I understand the system stacked against you. I, I get it all. But instead of saying, I want to do this, but I'm afraid, it's I, have no, I see no value in it at all. That's a depravity. If we don't value creating the next generation, we are a society full of depravity. And like, so many old, even old timers are like, this preacher jack? Well, maybe, I don't know. But I'm not saying do it because the Bible says so. I'm saying because if we don't, if we don't, then who's there for us in our old age? Who continues our work? Who builds our legacies? If we don't value children, there, there is no sicker society than the one that does not value the very existence of their children. And instead of valuing children, it's competing for who controls them. This is a sickness. And I do believe it is due to a disconnection from nature and reality. You're, you're not going to find a lot of kids that grew up on a farm that are confused about the difference between male and female. Okay, I don't care about political ideology at all there. I'm just saying if you grew up in the real world getting your hands dirty, you have a fundamental understanding of the reality of our planet and of the dichotomy within most species of male and female. You know that no matter how hard you pull, you're not getting milk out of a bull, and if you do, you're probably not going to want what you get. Okay? You know a rooster is never going to give you an egg. And so when somebody tries to twist that reality and say, well, yeah, biological sex is a thing, but different than gender, you're like a bullshit. But the fact that we have probably about half or more of the people in this country today that are completely okay with this total lie... And they don't just want you to leave them alone. They want you to parrot what they have to say. This is a morally depraved society. And this is the scary part. This is the actual scary part. A society about to collapse always looks like this infinity. Now, I don't necessarily mean a society that's about to get invaded and crushed by an invading army. That, that can happen to good societies and bad societies alike, no matter what any book tells you. Okay? 
But a society that collapses onto itself always goes into moral depravity. And go back through history and look, in every single one of them, people have constantly compared what we do with fiat money to the, the Romans devaluing their money by bringing bronze and things like that and, and making coins with lower silver content and all. That's a problem, but it's if you look at what Rome looked like as it crumbled, it was a morally depraved society. When we stop valuing each other and we start seeing the person cross the street because they put up a different sign than we did is evil, we've reached moral depravity. When, when children are going to school and being used as political pawns while they're in school, we have reached moral depravity. When we value money above relationships, we've reached moral depravity. When we have devalued money and then made it our God at the same time. So we take money and we destroy its underlying value and then we still worship it. I don't know if we have a word for that, so I'll use depravity. This is where we are. You didn't ask to be here. There's only one solution. Get your hands dirty. Find value in real work. Go out and do something productive and teach the people around you, especially young people, how to do the same thing and teach them to have value in it. Teach them to have pride in work. What we are teaching children now is to have pride in the absence of work. You should go to school, study as much as you can, get the best grades you can, even if you cheat, it doesn't matter. Get yourself a job, and the less you do in that job, the more successful you are. No matter how much, whether you make a middle class income, an upper income, a super the the, the, the goal is to do as little physical work as possible and to get away with as much slacking as you can. And then to have pride in being a useless leech upon society. Versus just a couple decades back, three decades back, okay, four decades back, all right. When I was a kid, what I was taught every day, it was reinforced one way or another, work hard. And it, that didn't mean get good grades. That was also important, but it was a separate thing. We didn't confuse... Passing your history test with working hard. Working hard probably involves something like a freaking shovel. You want to fix America? Put shovels in the hands of our youth, and there's plenty of shit to be done with shovels. You give me control of this place, I would make the Civilian Conservation Corps look like the Mickey Mouse Club. There's enough earthworks to keep people busy with shovels from here until the next century doing meaningful work that we can have pride in. And that's just one idea. A garden everywhere that we can put a garden. And if it, we have more food than we can use, then let's grow food for animals that way. Let's grow food for nature that way. Let's grow flowers. Let's grow herbs. Let's teach people about solving their health problems with diet and exercise and right living. Stop poisoning yourself with drugs, stop poisoning yourself with what they call food, stop poisoning yourself with what they call water and air. 
Get the hell away from their stuff and restore your health because most people in this country are sick as fuck, to be honest. The average person today that's over 30 years old is on at least two medications ongoing. A, a healthy person doesn't need to be taking medicine every freaking day. Now, if you're diabetic and you're using insulin, I understand. If you have some other chronic condition that's not diet and lifestyle related, I understand. There are people that are kept alive by the, the miracle of modern science. But it's not 99% of the people out there going, I can't afford my medication. Maybe you can't afford your lifestyle. You can't afford what your lifestyle is doing to your body. You want depravity? When we stop valuing our own bodies. When we willingly ingest toxins because it feels good for a minute. When we have gone from being the world leader in every freaking thing you could come up with to having the first generation that will expect to live less years than their parents. In a 20-year period, we have reached the fourth turning. We are here. The momentum in the world has shifted for hegemony. Society is changing, and what the country needs is dirtier fingernails and cleaner minds. Now again, I don't know exactly when Real Rogers said this, but I know that after he said it, we ended up fighting a giant, horrific global war we called World War II. I would like for us to avoid that this time. And sadly, I can't tell you that we will. But I will tell you that you don't get to decide that. You can vote your brain into your butt. And you won't change that. Things will be what they will be. But what you do control is right out your door, right out in your backyard. You control your kids up to a point. You control your relationships with the rest of your family, your friends, your community, your grandkids. You control that. Get out. Do something meaningful with your life while you have it. Get up off your ass. Get off the couch. Go do something. Our society has turned into literal couch potatoes. They might as well be. I, potatoes, potatoes are more useful. We're like couch fungus. I know there's good fungus too, but this is like rotting fungus. People's asses are literally attached like a fungus to their couch. And they're feeding themselves toxins both mentally and physically. They're consuming information that is absolute garbage because watching somebody else that's more screwed up than you makes you feel better about yourself. Eating sugar makes you feel better about yourself. Over-medicating your brain continuously with alcohol or nicotine makes you feel better about yourself. We have a society where we're blaming drug dealers that children are dying of fentanyl instead of saying, why are our children taking drugs with fentanyl? With no understanding. We started the drug war back when I was in school, and there's more people doing drugs today than ever before, that maybe that's a freaking failure. We're throwing people in prison for being addicted to a substance, and we think that's moral. We're sick. We need cleaner minds and dirtier fingernails. And here's the thing. This has always been true. You don't get to make that decision for anybody but you and the people you influence. Choose wisely. If you can still fog a mirror, you're not done yet. You have a dash. Don't waste it. 
Go out and do something meaningful for yourself, your children, and the great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren that you will never know. Create a legacy because they're worthy of it even though they're not here yet. Remember I've told you this before. Five generations ago, it was a great-great-grandparent, lots of them actually, multiple sides of your family. You can trace it back, two greats. They thought the way that I'm calling on you to think now. Long before you were ever thought of, they loved you. They loved you in the way that they lived their life because they lived their life based on making things better for the next generation rather than for themselves. And they knew full, full well that that cycle should continue. And they did it as much for you as they did it for their grandchildren before you were ever even thought of. Before your grandfather was even born, your great-great-grandfather was thinking of you. Because we were a moral society. Despite our flaws, at least we had that. We need to live that way again. Because that is the only thing that we actually get to contribute to the future. With that, I hope you enjoyed this week's show. I'm going to wrap up now. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z. tspaz.com. My item of the day today, I hadn't actually brought this around for a while. and Getting all my fishing gear ready to go out and fish. and I'm Going through my bag, and I'm like, oh yeah, i got to bring that back around. This is a, a little, it's a scissors, it's a forceps, it's a hook remover, it's a whole bunch of stuff. It's made by a company called Dr. Slick. Dr. Slick Scissor Clamp. These sell for about 20 bucks. I will never not have this tool in my life as a fisherman ever again. And it's hard to get your head around paying 20 bucks for a tool like this when you can buy like a pack of four, four, four sets of forceps for like eight bucks. I have those too, but this is what I rely on. And if you try it, watch the video I have in the write-up today, you'll see why. It does so much more than a typical set of forceps. They're incredibly well built. I think you'd have to do something really wrong to break it. Um, they won't rust on you. They're just fantastic. And I've got my favorite little zinger in the write-up, too. It's a zinger. A zinger's a little thing you put on your waistband, hook it to a belt loop. They can throw these things in your pocket, and you don't set them down and lose them since they are 20 bucks. Yeah. Um, I probably need more. I probably need more zingers than I have because I lose stuff all the time. But these guys, have they have a serrated scissor for line trimming. Uh, there's reviews that say they don't cr cut braided line well. You can watch me cut braided line like butter with it. They also have a little hook eye clearing spike. And it's built into the handle. And this is for like your jig heads that have the paint over the freaking hole. Like works really good for that. They have a flat tip screwdriver. Uh, it's just a great tool. Again, Dr. Slick, perfectly named. This thing is slick. Remember, even if you don't need this thing, though. If you're going to help us out, one of the easiest way to do that and support our work, do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Just start there. No matter what you buy, you will help us out. Also, consider becoming a member of the MSB. You get great discounts. Just brought you two brand-new great discounts. Renegade Butcher and bringing Josh on the MSB at the same time. 10% discount everything there. And Mile High Distilling. 10% off everything at Mile High Distilling. I just got my new uh, column tower from them today. Uh, I'm very excited about that. I'll have a video out probably next week. Uh, not using it, but talking about what it is and why it's cool. 
Uh, I haven't even opened the box yet. It just showed up. Anyway, with that, um, maybe that's what I'll do this weekend because i got a lot to do this weekend. I'm going to be installing more irrigation, planting a hell of a lot more stuff, and working on quite a few different things around here at Nine Mile Farm. I encourage you to get out there and make the most of your dash this weekend. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Yeah.